Both of those things are something that's facilitated not by the bishop, but through the bishop. Uh, what's actually happening here this morning has puts front and center the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And I just know as soon as you say the word Holy Spirit, that it's um, some people have a blank, other people coming from maybe Pentecostal or charismatic backgrounds that you thought you saw a lot of excess. Um, it's just the spirit is just something I think we need to constantly remind ourselves about because right at the heart of Christian spirituality is something that I would like to say is relational reliance. So now think of the times Jesus said, I only do the things I see my father doing. I only say the things I hear my father saying. The son can do nothing of his own, only what the father gives him to do. So in the father and the son, you see this deep, profound relational reliance. And the story of the New Testament is, is that we, the church, are meant to have that same sort of relational reliance on the Trinity, only for us, it's through the person and work of the Holy Spirit. So in a few minutes, when I lay hands on Ashley and the staff, when I lay hands on the confirmands, my intention will be is that they are literally filled afresh with the Holy Spirit. And if you confirmands, especially if that's what you intend to happen, well, you can pretty much count on a new animating, energy, empowering, and gifting, to coin a, fruit, uh, a phrase, in fruiting uh, life, because that's what's at the heart of the church, is the person and work of the Spirit. So as I say, if you just do word association and say Holy Spirit, you're likely to get just a lot of misunderstanding. And it could be true that the Holy Spirit is the biggest victim of prejudice in human history. It's just, you know, if you say father, everybody sort of gets that, even if you had a bad father. And, and you, people think of the one true creator God, that gets poured into the word father, and that's pretty intuitive. When you think of the son, that's very intuitive. And when you think of the relationship I was just talking about, completely intuitive. But when you think about the sending of the spirit, it, things begin to break apart. We're not clear what it is. And this morning, I want to help us get clear. So the first thing I want to say is that the Spirit is the third person of the Holy Trinity and therefore cannot be confined to history, as some would like us to believe. But nor is he the source of what many of us would feel to be charismatic or Pentecostal weirdness. And again, most people I talk to who are a little iffy about the Spirit, once you get past the imaginative or sort of theological parts of it, is that they really have seen excess. And oftentimes they've been hurt by it. They've been in situations where the, youth, the use of the spirit has been hurtful to them. And they just, you know, they have a hard time getting past it. And I completely empathize. And I understand even the reaction to reading our passage this morning. Like in a world of Bluetooth, what the heck does tongues of fire mean? Like, what is that? And a rushing wind, and like windows opened up in a place like this, and a breeze rushed through. Like, I get that we read that and just kind of don't know what to do with it. I mean, that's actually common and completely normal. But we're still left with the upper room discourse in which Jesus said, and I'll say more about this in a minute, it is better for you that I go away. Because if I go away, what? The Spirit will come. Now, we'll come back to that, but I understand that you might read the list of gifts in the New Testament in Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 12 or um, 
uh, Ephesians 4, you might read those lists and again, just sort of shrug your shoulders and go, I just don't even know what half of this means. I really do get that. But we are still left with the upper room discourse where Jesus, look me in the eye, Jesus thinks the sending of the spirit is fundamental to what we now call the age of the church. 2,000 years of God's will being done on the earth, Jesus imagines, Jesus thinks it's true that the spirit is what will allow that to happen. So what I want to say to you, and I, and I do say it with all empathy and kindness, those of you who are dealing with excesses of the spirit, I just want you to consider with me this morning that the spirit is a person, not a thing, not an it, not a power, and he is easily grieved by being ignored as he is by excess. To to throw out excess and to basically ignore him and reduce Christianity to an angry father who placates his anger in the death of the son, and I'm not saying there's not truth in that. I mean, we're not going to get into atonement theories this morning. I'm just simply saying that that story fundamentally leaves out the third person of Almighty God. We're talking about Almighty God here. And so the breadth of the Spirit's work is actually awesome. The Spirit is um, at creation. He's supervising history. He reveals God's truth. He draws people to Jesus. He teaches us the way of Jesus. He, Romans 5 says, reveals the love of God to our hearts. So if you feel in your heart that God loves you, well, you're already charismatic. That's the work of the Spirit, showing you in your deepest being that God loves you. It's the Spirit when you read the Gospels and and the book of Acts that gives power and authority. It's the Spirit who gives equipping gifts. And it's the Spirit who gives the transformation of our heart via the fruit of the Spirit. So can you hear me? The Spirit is central. We could say that we live by the plan and purpose of God in the age of the Holy Spirit. Jim Packer, a famous Anglican theologian, but certainly not at all known as a crazy charismatic, said this, that the essence of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is that he mediates to us the personal presence and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Sorry. The Holy Spirit mediates to us the personal presence and ministry of Jesus. Now, do you want that? Like, do you want to be caught up in the Jesus movement? Do you want to be caught up on what God is doing today? Do you want to be a a part of being an ambassador of the ruling and reigning of God? Well, that happens through the Spirit. And so, as I said, Jesus modeled for us that sort of relational reliance. And in John 14, in the Upper Room Discourse, he's teaching his first friends to do the same, where he says to them, I will not leave you as orphans. Now, he says that because their very fear was that they were going to be orphaned because he had said to them, what? I'm going away. And they couldn't process that. Of course not. And so if he first addresses their fear and says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And the way I'm going to come to you is through the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. And then he will do the things I said. He'll teach you all things. He'll bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Now, that word helper, the NIV, I think, translates it helper. Uh, it's the Greek term paraclete. And it's been translated many, many different ways. The best Greek scholars in the world can't agree exactly on how to translate it because it's such a multifaceted word. I would say my favorite translation of Pericles is the continuator. 
don't panic. My presence will continue with you. And in the same way I've been teaching you, leading you, guiding you, the Holy Spirit will do that. Now, this is why our reading this morning from the Gospels is such a huge part of the divine narrative. When Jesus said to his first friends in Luke 24, I'm going to send you what the Father has promised, but stay in the city until you've received power from on high. Well, why did they have to wait for the Spirit to come? Why did they have to wait to be touched or filled by the Holy Spirit? And if you only remembered one sentence this morning or in the show notes, you can put this one sentence. The purposes of God in full-orbed discipleship and full-orbed mission require a power that matches that intention. Let me say that again. The purposes of God in full-orbed discipleship and full-orbed mission require a power that matches that intention. And here's where Christian imagination often goes wrong. If we think the Christian story is fundamentally this, say this prayer so that when you die, you can go to heaven. Well, there's no imagination for the spirit there. There, And that's a whole other sermon, but there's no imagination for discipleship there either. Because that says that Christianity is all about something that happens to you when you die. It actually, by definition, leaves out this life. But as soon as you include this life, and as soon as you include God's purposes on the earth today, and as soon as you think that you're meant to be a part of those purposes coming to pass, well, it might be nice to have your character transformed such that you actually did love the other. And selfishness was being broken in us. It might be nice to have a word of wisdom when somebody's sitting in front of you and you feel powerless to help them. It might be really nice for the Lord to give you a word of knowledge. Or if you're somebody like Ashley, tasked to lead a church, it might be nice to have the gift of leadership. Are you feeling me here? This is actually very practical stuff. It's not whatever we might think of as charismatic or Pentecostal woo-woo stuff. And by the way, I'm not down on charismatic or Pentecostal Christianity at all. I'm just saying we can't be afraid of the, um, the excesses of that. So then in Acts 2 that we read this morning, Pentecost is the moment where, I want you to try to picture this bodily. Pentecost is the moment where the personal presence of Jesus with the disciples. Can you just picture that? Jesus and the 12 and maybe a few hangers on. Well, this is when that is translated into the personal power of Jesus in the disciples. Did you catch those pronouns? Jesus with them, sort of like you 12 here, Jesus with them, but now it's the personal presence of Jesus in them. And so Pentecost launches both the mode and the means by which God is putting into place, into power and authority, into operation in his people as a new world is being born. That's what the narrative of the New Testament teaches. I mean, I'm summarizing a lot there, but trust me, that's the narrative of the New Testament. So now I want you to think about this. I'm really a Presbyterian, but I guess I'll take a little bit of the spirit. Or I'm really a Baptist, but okay, maybe I'll be like a charismatic Baptist. As if you're doing God a favor. As if God's going to go, oh, thank you for your openness. I mean, where in the text did Jesus ever say, blessed are you? For your understandable cynicism has healed you. (laughs) Or to be congratulated, are you? You know, for your pessimism. No, Jesus always commended faith. 
Like when people saw it and got it and they had those moments where light bulbs went off in them, Jesus commended that. Like, oh my gosh, I've never seen faith like that in all of, in all of Israel, he said of the centurion. And to the people who got it, who, who trusted, who came to rely on, I don't mean have an adequate pneumatology. Sorry, a big word for what you think about the spirit. I'm not talking about something cerebral here, something that you would pass a little pop quiz on in a, in a theology class. I'm talking about relational reliance. When I got out of my car this morning, I put my, I said, Lord, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, the thoughts of my mind be acceptable in your mind. And I prayed, Lord, fill me with the spirit and said, okay, come on, Jesus, let's go do our work together. That is honestly how I live my life. Literally, day in and day out, from meeting to meeting to phone call to Zoom to whatever I'm doing, I try very hard to stay present to that moment through the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Inviting gifts. I think I prayed as I was getting in my car. Um, Lord, fill me with love. Uh, fill me with hospitality. You know, give me the gift of teaching. I've been doing this since I was 19 and I'm 66. I've been being told for 47 years I'm a good communicator. Well, I don't care. I get out of my car saying, Lord, fill me. Help me, help me to teach well. Help me to be a, a, a loving, positive presence. That's what's commended to us. So whatever you might do to get a paycheck, that, that's not excluded from your life in the spirit. That's the place where you do your life in the spirit. I happen to get a paycheck for being a bishop, but if I was running my own business or something, I would be conducting my life the very same way. So when we say yes to the Holy Spirit, what we're saying is yes to an animating, energizing, empowering, and gifting, and fruiting action of the Spirit to be loosed in us personally and also loosed in the church corporately. So then being filled with the Spirit is not an idea, it's not a proposition, it's not a bit of doctrine, it's something you know by experience. So you may be here today if you're a thoughtful Christian and you may not have clarity about when the Holy Spirit is given. You know, there's controversies around that. Is it a conversion or someplace else? And you may not know how it is that the Spirit is given. You know, some people think you have to speak in tongues. But you should have clarity about this. This is the second most important sentence. Is my life inspired by the Spirit? You should have clarity about that. I really could care less about the ancillary doctrines you have around the person, the work of the Spirit, but you should be clear. Is my life animated by the Spirit or am I animated by some other thing or some other person? Now see, this is what Jesus is getting at when he says, it's to your advantage that I go away. Now, I always want to stop here and, and say, you all think Jesus is smart, right? Right? Like you think he knew what he was talking about and he didn't just spout religious sayings? Okay, well, that Jesus you love and think is smart and competent is the one who's saying to us, it's better that I go away because in God's mind, the church will be led by the Spirit. What's in view here, I love the way Eugene Peterson gets at this in a, a book called Eat This Book. <clears throat> where he says everyone recognizes the difference between an accurate but wooden performance of, say, Mozart's violin concerto number one. 
So think of like a young 12 or 14 year old person, you know, gifted, up and coming musician. They know how to play in time. They know how to play in tune and they get through it. And, you know, we all applaud. But if you if you hear Perlman play that same song, you realize there is something entirely different happening. And Peterson describes it as Perlman's performance is not distinguished merely by its technical skill in reproducing what's on the score, but he wondrously enters into and conveys the spirit and the energy, the life of the score. And that's the joy of the spirit-empowered life. We enter into the narrative of God. We enter into whatever it was that Jesus was imagining when he said, it's better that the age of the church is going to be led by the third person of the Holy Trinity, God Almighty, not a religious consumer choice. Not, I'm really Presbyterian or whatever, but I'll Lutheran, but I'll take a little bit of the spirit. Not that. Fundamental, grounding, central, core to the work of God on the earth today is the spirit alive in the church. Because it's the spirit who gives us Romans 5, that inward experience of being loved by God. It's the spirit who gives us authority. I mean, think how back on heels, sorry, that's sort of an athletic metaphor. I played baseball in college. You, you, you can't hit on your heels. You can't return serve on your heels. You, you can't do anything. You can't be linebacker. Congratulations on winning yesterday. You, you can't be linebacker on your heels. And the church these days, so buffeted by winds of secularism and being rejected and um, you know, all of our scandals in the evangelical world, the Southern Baptist world, the Roman Catholic world, all those things kind of have us back on our heels. Well, wouldn't it be nice to have the Spirit giving you a sense of you're authorized? That's athaltain in the New Testament. And it's the Spirit who spreads athaltain. It just means you're commissioned by God. And, and that happens through the Spirit. Or the Spirit gives dunamis, power. That just simply means not the way we think of misuse of power today. But the, what the, the idea of the New Testament is that you'll be given capacity to do this. Like God's trying to birth a new world through us. That's going to take some authority and power. Well, that comes from the Spirit. It's the ability to do what our rabbi did. So if you think of Jesus, um, students of rabbis in Jesus' day, didn't want to know what the rabbi knew. They wanted to become the kind of person the rabbi was and do what he did. And we tend to think, because it's translated teacher, that it has to do with, you know, theological courses. It includes that, but it can't be reduced to it. They wanted to follow him. It was said that we want his dust on us. We want to be in his sphere, what he's doing, becoming like him. So that we would live our lives the way he would live it if he were in our place and have its effect. So then how do we get in on this? Well, John 20, we didn't read this morning, but, you know, that's the the end of the story of uh, the gospel of John. And the way we see how we get in on this is that it's a desire to get on the get in on the story I've been telling you about. The story in which the person and work of the spirit emerges And so Jesus puts it this way, even as the father sent me, what? So I send you. And then he breathed on them 
and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, are you feeling the narrative here? That's why this can never be a discrete little piece of theology, pneumatology. This is narratival and it's personal. And we're talking about almighty God. So again, if you think Jesus is smart, what do you think he imagined when he said those words? Even as the father sent me, so I send you. And then seeing the power that would be necessary for the church to be sent in that Christ-like way, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, in a few minutes, Ashley is going to celebrate Eucharist with us. And when we all come forward, we're going to come forward actively receiving something. That Greek text is almost the exact same Greek text in the Eucharistic passages. When Jesus says, take, eat, he's saying the same thing here. Take the Holy Spirit. So take the Holy Spirit. Or take the Holy Spirit. Or however... You would bodily say, yes, I desire Jesus. What you say is crucial, and I want to be given it. And so he breathes on them. Again, the Greek text is he exhales, and the visual imagery is like balloons. They were all filled. As he exhales, it inflates them. It inflates their life with power, authority, gifts, and transformation by the fruit of the Spirit. So the idea here is, again, we're, we're, we're receiving a person. We're receiving this animating power that I've been talking about. And so what's happening here in this passage is it's telling us that we can't just be open. But it means welcome with confidence. Embrace the life and leadership of the, of the spirit. Receive it. It means to actively lay hold of it. One Greek dictionary says it means to accept with initiative and that it emphasizes the will of the receiver. Like in the same way we say we want to receive. Now, when I'm sitting in church, which I did a lot in the last six months because of sabbatical and other things, not traveling a lot and even during COVID. When I'm sitting where you're sitting every week before I come up to uh, have um, Eucharist or if I'm kneeling at a rail, I pray, um, Father, whatever Jesus intended with this broken body and shed blood, I intend to receive. Because frankly, um, I, I, there's so much mystery there, I, I can't even pretend to know exactly what Jesus meant to convey to us in Eucharist. I don't know. It's too much for me. That's why I just say, Lord, whatever you intended, that I might not be able to comprehend, I might not be able to get cognitively, my heart wants to receive whatever it meant you meant to convey to us in Eucharist. And that's the exact same idea with receiving the Spirit. Eagerly desire the gifts, Paul said. Ask, try, cooperate, believe, start, persevere. Begin to discern the Spirit's activity in and around you. Well, if you're still not convinced, one last word. Luke 11. This is where, um, this is a point in Luke's gospel where, you know, Luke, uh, Luke's uh, favorite phrase for Jesus is the son of man. And Luke seems particularly interested in the humanity of Jesus, and he makes a great contribution that way. And so you get to the point in Luke here where Jesus had gone away by himself so many times that the disciples ask him, what the heck are you doing when you go away? And then remember, he teaches on prayer, and he teaches, he gives the, um, uh, what we call the Lord's Prayer. Then he ends that passage by saying, remember, ask, seek, knock, well, here's the last word. If you then, though you are evil, 
know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? If you ask for the Spirit, if you say, Jesus, whatever you intended in the upper room, I intend to receive, your life will be inflated. Not with weirdness. That's something you would choose. But inflated with love of your neighbor, love of enemy, care for the other. You will be inflated with the Jesus life. That's the vision of the New Testament.